We're on WSQF Blink Radio, Key Biscayne 94.5. You want to listen to us on the live stream, wsqfradio.com worldwide. And today we're having the Concrete Conservative Friday hour because... Friday night fights. Friday night fights Intellectual fights. Ed yes. Victorious Vidal. See, I was right from the get-go to call you Victorious Vidal. Okay. Because, you know, you all, all of a sudden you throw, you throw me a hook and a line and a sinker and... You save the station time and time again with legitimate guests that actually are more intelligent than I am. We've had some uh, good guests. Did you have? Did you have Claudia Miro? She's running for city council in Coral Gables. I've not hooked up with her. Oh, you got to get her. She, her election's in April. Yeah, and uh, you'll have more like that. Um, you know what? I think I. I don't think it was my fault. The the, the lack of follow through. I think it was her fault. All right. Could now be. there is an issue. Yes. That. Recently, because of these of offering this this stuff on offer up mm-hmm. in my personal life, I got the rubber killer on my cell phone. So there's a lot of calls that come in that and I it get gets blocked. screened out. Get okay, screened what out. about uh, Brad from Comanche Country in Texas? Brad Price from Comanche Country has he been coming in? I have not been uh, you have too not been excited in touch with him. Okay. Yeah, I have been. Okay, texting back and forth. He's never been in here. Okay, he gave me. Uh, like uh, okay, an well, attempt to do something from CPAC. We're CPAC's. always looking for new uh, talent for your show and uh, your station. We have to emphasize talent. Yes. And okay. It, and it's falling. It's not doing well. I don't find the I don't find the radio audience at all enthused of humdrum radio, especially when I'm you know doing stuff all the time. Okay. Um, but anyway, see like right now. Some guy named Mariano wants to offer me 180 bucks for one of the pieces. Pieces that, of what? Of furniture. Oh my God! Oh, you're, oh that's right. You're I, moving. I'm Have moving. you told your audience you're selling your parents' house? No. And you're se- yeah. I waited for you to say that. Okay, so you're moving. You're gonna have to find another place to live in uh, Key Biscayne, I hope. Uh, I was gonna crawl under a rock. There's some big ones here. All right, you could be the Homeless in Key Biscayne. Like we could do a homeless, radio show yeah. on that. Asking for Biden's stimulus check to actually affect me personally. So I think this Emily's calling. Let's see here. Good afternoon. This is WSQF Blink Radio 94.5 on the Concrete Conservative Show with Ed Vidal. And I'll just remain anonymous for now. Uh, is this Emily? How are you? Yes, it is. How are you? Thank you. Nice to meet you. It's, uh, he speaks very highly of you. And he likes... To remind me that he's you're going to be talking about FDR that I'm not very fond of. You'll get to that. Amity, thank you very oh. much. My name is Ed, v- Ed Vidal, and I had a lot of my friends uh, who uh, insisted that I, I, I line you up to call into our show because of your, the new autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. So thank you very much for calling. Of course. How are you? We're great. And you should know that I'm a member of a reading group down here in sunny South Florida that... Uh, it's also through the uh, through last year we've been going through your two books, one on the New Deal called The Forgotten Man, and the other one on the Great Society, LBJ's Folly. So we are big fans of yours down here. Oh well, thank you very much. Um, uh, properly, uh, the book properly titled LBJ. Yeah, well, <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, so, but now we, we I was telling Manny that you're now the executive director of the Calvin Coolidge Foundation, and that. Uh, you are you are very active. I think you've written a biography of Calvin Coolidge. Is that right? That's right. Okay, I saw that. And then you're, uh, there's a new autobiography of Calvin Coolidge out 
that you guys wrote a, a note uh, about, and I'd like to, to ask you, see if you can tell us a few things about, uh, I'm not going to call him Silent Cal, because I think he was very right to uh, be a man of few you words. You mean do nothing, Cal? He's no, he was not. Do, it was good. Listen, one of the points we'll make. Yeah, conservatives, uh, we should we be proud of presidents policy, that do yeah, nothing. Absolutely. A lot of times, it's better to do nothing and let things work themselves Especially out. Especially if you have a multiple majority against you in Congress. Absolutely. Well, he didn't always have that. Uh, so, Amity, one, one thing that I'd like to start with is that I'm a student of bi- uh, American history and American biographies, and when I look at the uh, 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 oh, we all, oh, my my wife is here. She also says that we heard you at the Foundation for Economic Education in Dobbs Ferry. I don't know it's if you remember. Possible. You remember that? Oh yeah, I've been there. Okay, I've yeah, we there. used to live in Scarsdale, and uh, about ten, uh, we moved out of there about ten years ago, and then they they moved to Atlanta. And you wanted her to remember this experience? Absolutely. The fee was a great great house. It was there from 1946 until very recently. So. We, we are great fans of yours. But one well, po- thank you. Yes. Well, one thing, well, so one, one, one place where I wanted to start is where does this rate in terms of American autobiographies? Because when I think of American autobiographies, I always think of Benjamin Franklin, who I read in, uh, in high school. And I'm, uh, I'm an immigrant uh, from Cuba, and Manny's a son of immigrants. So I think we're both very attached to a story by a young man who works hard and, and does good. So Ben Franklin's autobiography is one of my favorites. And then in college, I read Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, and that was also very encouraging and very inspiring uh, to a guy like me. So wh- where do you rank uh, Calvin Coolidge's autobiography compared with that? Well, I'll just say way up there. Okay. Frederick Douglass counts, too. Okay, I didn't read that, but that would be good. That would be really good. Uh, Lincoln writes well. Yeah, but uh, Lincoln didn't write an autobiography. Yeah, there's a new book about presidents. Okay. Um, and they're writing, which I recommend by Craig Furman. Okay. Am I breaking up as much as I sound like I'm breaking up? Um, I, I hear you loud and clear. Yeah, we're uh, fine. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, some heavy pitches that are, are you know, my, my voice is very hoarse, so sometimes they sound loud to me, but... No, you're you're coming in uh, clear, and if you have any problems, uh, uh, are you talking to us from a cell phone or a landline? Uh, cell phone, but this should be better, right? Yeah, a cell phone might be a problem, yes. So if it's, okay. it's on your end only, so right. far. So you got Frederick Douglass. Uh, what else? That's where I'm, okay. I'm not actually familiar with the other presidents, which tells you something. Okay, so let there me are ask plenty you of something. Statesman biographies I like and autobiographies, right. but Coolidge is right up there because he writes clear, right. like a good, not a bad preacher. Right. So Calvin Coolidge wrote his autobiography right after he left office in uh, March of 1929, and it was out by the summer. So that was good. He was must have been planning it and so on. How do you compare a guy who writes his autobiography, like right after he leaves the office of president, with another president, our 44th president, Barack Obama, who had already written two autobiographies before he was elected president? Yeah, it's called self-importance. Some people need to go over it and over it, don't they? An example is Herbert Hoover, okay, who wrote just piles of memoirs, and I think he used a dictationist because he repeats within the memoirs. And you can feel a little bit um, Hoover's pain because Hoover was a 
man accustomed to success, and yet he was not successful as president. One yes. term, much maligned, yep. sometimes meritedly and sometimes unfairly. So he, he, there's just stacks and stacks of Hoover memoirs. Well, so he had to get, you know, Hoover was a progressive. Did you, uh, yes, do you disagree sir. with that? No, sir. Okay. <laughs> so that's the problem with progressive government, um, that, you know, it's a failure. Now, FDR, from the get-go. From the get-go. Right. FDR took up a lot of Hoover's policies, but he was more effective at selling them. Uh, okay, so let, let's go to your—so that, that's how we rank the, the biographies. Let's go over to the, your, the act, your introduction, which I think is very, very informative and a very good introduction for this. And one of the things that when I, when I started, when I read it, uh, you, were, you were emphasizing that uh, Hoover was saying the power of America lay not in great men— but in great institutions, institutions built on their own bedrock, the bedrock of principle. And, these, you know, people were not, are best governed by principles, not by potentates. Uh, the success of the nation depended on the popular commitment to those principles, not to men. I generally agree with you, but I, I have a, a bone to pick with you on this, because unless you have men who are willing to implement those principles— to be not potentates, but leaders. You know, where would the, the Union be in the Civil War if it weren't for, uh, for men like Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, Farragut, Sheridan? These men were not necessarily great men before the war started, but they rose to the occasion. And I think in some respects, uh, I think Coolidge is a disappointment to me because he had an opportunity. He could, If he had stayed as president, he would have maybe put the country on a better uh, path and we wouldn't have gone into the disaster, which was the New Deal. Uh, Aristotle said that good men go into politics to avoid being ruled by lesser men. And for that reason, I would have urged Calvin Coolidge to stay in office. What do you think? make of that? Well, yes, um, it's a trade-off. If, if you emphasize the man too much, it becomes all about him, doesn't it? Yes, but so that's the problem. There's with a the great man emphasis. It, we're not that interested in him. We're interested in him supporting the or her supporting the institutions. And what Coolidge did was tremendous. Which Harding besmirched the United States, his predecessor, right. by arguing for the private sector and then handing over government resources to the private sector. In a crooked way. Right. The teapot dome. Uh, dome the teapot dome. What, if you say you're for privatization or or turning resources over to the private sector, in this case it was Navy leases, mm -hmm. you better do a good job at that. Right. Otherwise, you besmirch the principle itself. Harding was, was a slob, right. as it was said. So Coolidge came in and he was, what's, what's the opposite? The negative would be a prince. Yes. I, I don't think he was a prince. I think he had to act... Uh, by example, right. live by example, in order to clean up the besmirched presidency. It, there is an element of sanctimony, right. one can grant you that, to leaving because it's the virtuous thing to do. But I think Coolidge's model of leaving, in which he said he was doing not because he was weak or because his son had died, but because it was healthy for the republic to respect the institutions more than the individual's. That's worth a lot, too. It inspired many people later, including, for example, Ronald Reagan. 
Well, but see, that's the problem, because he left the office, and it was taken up by progressive men like Hoover, who screwed up the economy, Franklin Roosevelt, who violated Washington's example and ran for a third and then a fourth term, which he didn't finish. And I tell you, we didn't have a conservative president again until Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. I think that had more to do with the people than with Coolidge. Coolidge was also a politician, and he saw that the progressive movement was growing, and he doubted his own ability personally to stop it because he he felt he'd spent his good energies fighting progressivism in the 20s. Uh, rather for a long time. If someone else had to do battle, I would say it's the rest of the country that failed us by not stepping up. If a politician stays too long, he becomes a hypocrite because he says he's about institutions, but he's really about himself. Right. So what what other politicians did he have around him at that time? I mean, you talked about when he was coming up, Senator Crane was very helpful and was a conservative as opposed to Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, when he was in a uh, president, uh, Mellon, the secretary of the treasury, were, was very helpful. But who else did he have to to to, to help him during that time? What well, other? Well, you know, what's interesting about this period is the Seventeenth Amendment. When we right. stopped, pop, we used to have a system whereby Senate, right, state Senate selected U.S. senators, right, and what that was kind of a counterbalance to Congress elected often and through the direct popular vote. Right. And what was the advantage of that kind of Senate? Wait, that sounds sort of strange. No, no, I like it. We like it. The advantage was that senators tend to pick people they knew pretty well. Okay. So a congressman is a first impression person. Right. I like him. My first impression is he's awesome. In those days, before the 17th Amendment, People picked someone they liked on the fourth impression, and that's always good. It's like you go to a store, you go back because you had a pretty good impression there before, even if they don't brag a lot or spend money on marketing. Right. So well, I have, a, I have a question for you. Those around Coolidge were created by the pre-17th Amendment period. In particular, you mentioned Murray Crane. People have heard right. of Crane Stationery. That was right. Coolidge mentor. Yep. He was a wonderful man. Okay. Now, well, I have a question for you. Uh, what was his personal opinion about something that I find atrocious, the actual 17th Amendment? Yeah, that's was, a good point. Yeah, yeah. See, Manny, you know, I don't know. He, Man- as we know, Coolidge didn't run his mouth off. He picked his battles. Yep. I don't know, but if you listen to this autobiography, and now we're getting a great audio version read by Terrence Azelford, okay. you can hear some ambivalence about recent constitutional amendments in Coolidge's prose. So, yeah, so he I'll just didn't want to go there. Well, listener to discern the level of Coolidge's ambivalence or distaste. Yeah, see, because Manny and I are both active with a convention of states movement down here in Florida, and we don't know where that's going to get. There's only 15 states where, where really it's really a movement to promote self-governance. But we find the 17th Amendment to be a real backbreaker of the checks and balances that were built by the founders. Well, you saw it, you you saw saw it, it during the, the convention, during the well, election. Well, during the election. You know, the no election, recall power. The, the, the state legislatures have been neutered, neutered. Yeah. since uh, the 17th Amendment. They just, and they're just disregarded. You know, the federal government uh, bribes them to, to vote one way or the other by setting up these 
uh, funds for highways and, and Medicaid and so on. No, it almost forces their hand and yeah. say, you either do this or you don't get the money. Right. And that's so not right. Yeah, that's so... so that's so we're we're uh, we're strong supporters, I guess, of repealing the Seventeenth Amendment. Absolutely. What do you think? How would Calvin have stood there? Well, ambivalence. <laughs> it's such a counterfactual, but but yeah. Coolidge didn't want a lot of more amendments. I don't think he said the Constitution is pretty good. Right. If all men are equal, that is final. Yep. And those who seek to change our government a lot are actually retrograde. Right. Well, okay, so that's they're the answer. They're not progressive. worse and bad that was before the Constitution of the right. United States. So he, he's a true conservative, right. and he's very likable in that because he doesn't, uh, he's not belligerent, but he's firm. Right. Well, let's go to, the, to some of his policies. Uh, the, the main thing, and it was mentioned in the Rush Limbaugh show today, it, the last time the federal government's budget actually decreased from one year to the next, was during Calvin Coolidge's presidency. Where, where does he get this, you know, conservative principles and, and firmness? Uh, the United States of America. <laughs> it, it, he really the long was lost virtue. You actually cut the budget, so right. you have a budget that was a certain number when he came into office, and when he left office, sixty-seven months later, that number was actually lower. Right. It, Coolidge didn't merely reduce the rate of increase, which is what lawmakers call a cut today. Mm-hmm. He didn't talk about the budget vis-a-vis the population, which was naturally growing. He didn't talk about, you know, inflation and so on or deflation. He just said the number has to be lower. It was very interesting. And that came out of, um, I mean, you can, you can elaborate on that. Uh, he came out of a rough area in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vermont is supposed to be farming area, but his particular town had so many rocks that the agriculture department found scarcely an acre of it that was truly arable, and that there they were farmers, they farmed rocks. Right. His father wasn't poor, but didn't have a lot of money. The people around him didn't have a lot of money in this rocky part of Vermont, beautiful but rocky. Uh, and Coolidge liked to save. The Coolidge's understood that saving was important. He, he believed in life insurance and, and annuities, um, in fact, as a, as a replacement for Social Security or a preemption yeah. of Social Security. Social Security, of course, didn't exist in his life, but he kind of knew it was coming, the yep. progressive wave. And the one board Coolidge went on subsequent to being president was the board of New York Life. Okay. So I noticed uh, also that uh, he went to Amherst College, uh, which is now very liberal, but then he read law. He didn't go to law school because it was too expensive. He read the law in the in the chambers of a law firm in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. Well, yes, that's right, and I agree that that's an important moment mm-hmm. because a lot of his friends went to law school, right. including Harlan Fisk Stone, right, who later went to the Supreme Court, um, or Dwight Morrow, right. who was a help who, good... who supported his political career. Right, you know, you've heard of Anne Morrow Lindbergh. That mm-hmm. was her dad. Okay, the reason Lindbergh met Anne Morrow was Coolidge sent Dwight Morrow to be ambassador to Mexico. Mm-hmm. So it's, so a lot of history is related to Coolidge. But Coolidge's father thought that law school sounded expensive. And at that time, you could learn the law on the job by reading law. It yep. was also sort of culturally more Coolidge. And I do think when you look at the law books he read, and he details them in his autobiography, that he probably came away with a more traditional common law 
mm-hmm. outlook than you would have got at Harvard Law School, even at that time. They would have had more progressive thinking. Yep. I get it. Uh, okay, so one thing that he is very much like Ronald Reagan is his handling of the police strike in Boston in September of 1919. Uh, they went on strike against the law and against their contract, and he fired them, or he threatened to fire them. How do you, how do you see that as a uh, do you see that as a uh, as an analogy with Ronald Reagan handling the air traffic controllers? Well, Reagan did. Yes. I mean, Reagan, uh, I, I remember that General Meese used to go around the attorney general and, and talk about how Reagan read Coolidge, maybe even in the okay. hospital wow. after the assassination attempt. Um, but the Reagan scholars have to tell us all the detail on that. What happened in Coolidge's case was that policemen in Boston did not have the right to strike in their contract. Right. But they decided they would unionize and go on strike. They didn't join the Wobblies, the, the communist union. Mm-hmm. They joined the AFL, which was considered acceptable and more well, by President Woodrow Wilson, the president of the period. And where was Coolidge? He was governor of Massachusetts, which for various reasons in Massachusetts law, that governor was overseeing the person who was overseeing the policeman. Mm-hmm. When the policeman went on strike, and we have a beautiful drawing of this at Coolidge House, um, there were riots in Boston. Sure. There were windows broken. There were people who died. He had to call out the state guard um, and other state guards mm-hmm. as governor, and the policemen were fired. Mm-hmm. And and this move was not entirely expected because the Republican Party was known to be progressive. Then right. many people believed the Republican Party was the progressive party. Coolidge had an election soon after, and this is in my book, Coolidge. Yep. So the strike was around Labor Day, and the election was November, and Coolidge needed to win another election, right, to stay governor. Sure. So the, the, the policeman probably thought Coolidge would settle with them, and right. he did not. He backed up the police commissioner right. in the firing, and then Gompers wrote, of the AFL, wrote Coolidge pleading, you know, talk to these people, and Coolidge wrote back a famous line that echoed down yep. the century, there's no right to strike against the public well, safety. And, and you know what? There are a couple of New Dealers, Franklin Roosevelt and Fiorella LaGuardia, who would have agreed with him. Yes. That's, think I think about that's that. even in my book. Yep. In my, um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of people agreed. But then well, people were more conservative then. And Wilson didn't want strikes in every city. There was a really ugly and terrifying general strike in Seattle that year, and the mayor um, was quite distressed about it, and the whole city, they said you you could, it was silent during that general strike. That was a new thing for the United States. The revolutions in Europe were much closer. Right, 1917. Um, So 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 let's wait, let's follow that. An example of a state showing up of the federal government, because Coolidge, as the governor, did the right thing, and the federal government said, oh yeah, look, look at that leadership (laughs) from the state of Massachusetts. And Coolidge became a national figure. Right. That's how he got to be vice president. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's follow that up to one of your other books uh, on the Great Society, okay. because the rule that uh, the public uh, unions were not allowed continued pretty much until 1961 or 62, when President Kennedy and uh, a fellow at the Department of Labor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, uh, changed it. I think I read about that in one of your other books. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, yeah, that's executive order. I think it's 10988. Okay. I hope the listeners will correct me if I get that wrong. Anyway, that executive order uh, is an example of a little thing that seems like nothing. Is that, the oh, I thought that was history. JFK. Yeah, it that was JFK. Yes. Yeah, or, JFK right? did so that. That's government. JFK and Arthur Goldberg. Yeah, that was government was the collective bargaining. And Moynihan, who worked with Goldberg in a very junior capacity. Right. So, so they write this little executive order relating to unionization, and it says in there that these public sector people they're writing about can't strike. And they thought, this is benign. It just says, well, they're allowed to organize. But what the little executive order did was embolden all the public sector unions to begin, and, and they became very strong, and they demanded high wages premium in specific because they – were giving something, which is they were ceding the right to strike. And that drove the high cost of government ever after. Right. Yes, deficit spending from that federal. moment on. Now, are you implying that there were public unions before 109-88? They, yes, there were, but yeah. they were pretty weak. Yeah, they didn't have collective um, bargaining power. Associations, they didn't yeah. really have bargaining. I mean, right. they were more like teacher associations right. well, and, in, things, and, and in government. Too. The Chicago, there was also the post office. Which okay. had a different structure. The Chicago Teachers Union was organized around 1937, when a lot of the labor legislation. But it didn't. They were. They did not become the sole bargaining agent for all Chicago teachers until 1965 or 66. When, uh, when and, JFK. And since, right after JFK had led the way in the federal level, and I think that the public sector union, especially at the state and local levels, but even the federal level, are a big problem. Uh, have caused the all these. The, f- the fiscal problems and the, the decline in the quality of education, for example, is in the, which is happening now with the teachers' unions refusing to go back to school. And does that mean we're held hostage? Yep. Does that mean that I was right this yeah, whole time? Yeah, yeah. yeah Manny's yeah. a big uh, school choice. Uh, per, or yeah, par- I have the only on the school. Uh, you gentlemen aren't asking about Coolidge in Cuba, because that's interesting. Well, that's, well we're, please. We're going to go to that. Yeah, I, uh, what about uh, Coolidge and, the, I guess, trade uh, policy with Cuba? Yeah, I'm glad you reprimanded my yeah. victorious Vidal because I was he that. misses the beat sometimes. It was in the next page. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, he's, oh, oh. he's creating a crescendo or something. He's creating like a climax. I understand. All right, oh, go well, for I'm, it. I'm ready. You tell me what to answer. Go ahead. Tell us about uh, what he did with the tariffs in Cuba, which caused so well, much trouble. Well, he allowed the tariffs to go up. Right. And that wasn't good for Cuba. Because Cuba needed to export sugar. Right. And this, so this is my least favorite thing about Calvin Coolidge, because I'm kind of free market. I come right. from the Wall Street Journal. So so he, here he wants Cuba to succeed and be friendly with the United States and actually goes to Havana. Okay. In fact, um, he was the last president before Obama. And, uh, you know, for president. Um, and uh, has a nice time with President Machado? Yeah, that's probably yeah. right. So, he allows he allows the tariffs to go up. Why? Because this is his blind spot or his war. Because he comes from a sugar state and he thinks America should produce its own sugar. He, you know, he collected maple syrup when he was a little boy, oh, and that was funny. Important <laughs> for the economy of Vermont at that time. But uh, I think it was a blind spot. Yep. Well, that was the problem with uh, that was the blind spot for the Republican Party, uh, starting with Link from the beginning. They were always more of a the the tariff party as opposed to the Democrats were more free traders. So we have to admit that, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it should have been the oh. only form of taxation possible. I mean, 
Now that leads right into the progressive income tax. Why is that around? You know. Well, they're sort of a trade-off, right? Historically, the Republicans were the tariff party and the GOP was the income tax. I'm sorry, the, the Democrats were the income tax party. Right, that's not so good either. So yeah, I don't know yeah, which com- one is yeah, worse. Progressive in- income tax is a tenant of the Communist Manifesto, for Christ's sake. So one of the points you make here is that economic growth in the Coolidge years averaged 4% a year. That's amazing. That was the, the 20s, and people complain about it. What, how, how did he do that? Why don't you tell our audience? Is that the, is that the famous Roaring Twenties? Yes, absolutely. He, he got credit for it, though. Yep, he, and, and rightly so. The 20s so. really did roar. Yeah. It, it's not a joke. It's not a bubble in the champagne glass of Jay Gatsby. Uh, people people act like it was sort of all a bubble, and we know that because the Depression was so great. They have that kind of emotional logic. There's no evidence for that. Right. The 20s were fabulous. People got washing machines, radios, their first or second car. The two-day weekend. Eight, and they got Saturday off huh. in the 20s. That's when it started. The, Wow, really? Yeah, Saturday's so off? They, like they already had Sunday. Yeah, that was because of the increased productivity, not the labor unions. A lot of times the labor unions say, well, without us, you wouldn't have Saturdays off. It's not because of that. Before there were labor unions, the increased productivity was such that uh, you could get your Saturday off. Is that right, well, Amity? that's right. That's right. In fact, union membership did not increase in the 20s. Right. The, the Ku Klux Klan shrank by the end of the 20s, and the union shrank in many areas. So it was just a, and how we got it was by managing the budget, Coolidge, and by cutting taxes and sending a signal to business that government was going to tax flex, that the, that the direction of taxes under Coolidge was downward. You asked about colleagues. Here we have to mention Andy Mellon, right. the Treasury Secretary, to whom Coolidge delegated a lot, delegate. Uh, understood that Mellon knew something he didn't. Mellon knew how to finance. Mm-hmm. He was the the, um, the world maestro in refinance, debt manager, and he respected Mellon. And Mellon said, we're going to cut the tax rate to 25%, three percentage points actually lower than Ronald Reagan's bottom rate. Right. And we're going to get enough money to pay for it. And Coolidge kind of doubted that, a cautious person, Coolidge. But he went along because he knew Mellon knew more about finance than he did. And it's true that the government ran a surplus even with the tax cuts. Well, yeah, so he was a, the first supply-sider. He, well, he was also um, a budget cutter. Coolidge had twin line cuts. Good. And one of them was called Budget Bureau, and the other one was called Tax Reduction. Right. And you can imagine him feeding them even Stephen two line cups, you know, sliding the stake across the floor to to the tax line, and then the stake to the budget line, because he really was unnerved by the idea of promising that growth always comes when you cut taxes, even if you don't watch the budget. Well, that, I, I and that is him. true today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Trump's tax cuts created a beautiful economy, so they had to sabotage it but by still, COVID. Need, yeah, yeah, this is unbelievable. We're, we're and, for... and and the last Democrat who actually believed in tax cuts to stir the economy was John F. Kennedy. Right, that's probably right. That is well, very certainly right. not Tip O'Neill. Uh, that's good. And um, so one of the things you have here is that he's got he he gave the speech at the 150th anniversary of the um, uh, of the Declaration of Independence, and he he was very certain about who he was. I mean, he was 
he was very much sold on America. He says, if, if all men are created equal, that is final. If they're endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If government derives its just powers from the consent of the government, of the governed, is, that is final. So he was a very pro-American unapologetically. Is that right? That is right, sir. He, he really was a city-on-a-hill person. He said, let America be an example, help her be an example, and she has that utility for the rest of the world. If we let America lead the way, other countries, and particularly the citizens of other countries, even in oppressed regimes, will be glad right. of her existence. It'll be a good example. And that Reagan also said something to that effect, of course. No, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think the reason that uh, democracy returned to Latin America uh, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile during the 80s was because of the example that Ronald Reagan set and the pressure that the State Department put on uh, even Pinochet held elections and they've had free elections. Why did he since. regret that? No, 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 no. They persecuted him the rest of his no, life. No, no, no. But see, and in Brazil and Argentina, huge countries, they held elections in the 80s. And, you know, for better or worse, they're democratic governments today. So that, I think you're right. I think it's, it, it, Reagan certainly set an example uh, following this. So then, so that, why don't we, well, isn't that a perfect segue for to LBJ who ruined <laughs> well, it all? Here's, well, here's what we're going to segment to. So wh- what went wrong? What what happened? I mean. <laughs> LBJ is what happened. No, no, no. It was, first it was Hoover, then FDR. Oh, what, oh you want to know about the. The late 20s, early 30s. Well, one thing, the market went too high. The stock market was 100, and then it went to 381. Do you think Coolidge liked that? Not at all. It was too high, but he was not in charge of the stock market. There was no SEC even at that time. It was up to the states. The states regulated Charles Ponzi of the Ponzi scheme. So, um, well, the SEC doesn't do any better with the SEC hasn't necessarily done any better with their regulations. I mean, are you saying that the states had their own? um, How would they register their productivity on a national market? There was no federal uh, securities regulator in those days. So what? It was just what what would come out in the newspapers. Yeah, you register in New York or Boston, New York State. Yeah, you register with the state of Massachusetts. So, so um, Coolidge had seen plenty dramatic crashes in his life, but usually they weren't followed by 10-year depressions. What made the what the, the crash, be that as it may, you know, the crash happened, yep. what, the real question is what made the depression great, put the great in the phrase great well, depression, Franklin the employment of 10 years, and the answer is not Calvin Coolidge. Right, right. It's government intervention over years under Hoover, yep. bipartisan, and Roosevelt. So, so there was a chief economist at the time at Chase Bank named Benjamin Anderson who wrote a book about it, and I really like this book. Uh, he's a mainstream guy, Benjamin mm-hmm. Anderson, from the period, and he said, what's the problem with the 1930s? The government played God. Right. That's the And, the, you know, why is that? Because if, if the government plays God too vigorously, business people just kind of glue themselves to the wall and wait it out. Right. Capital strike. Capital because strike. it's terrifying to have an elephant or, or a donkey in the room kicking wildly. And Roosevelt's policy in particular insists, placed an emphasis on experimentation. You remember the phrase of FDR, bold, persistent experimentation. Well, markets don't like that. Right. They don't like experiments. They like 
normalcy, as Harding and Hoover would say, and uh, Harding and Coolidge would say, and Hoover was actually more like Roosevelt than he was like Calvin Coolidge. Absolutely. I think Hoover and Roosevelt were both progressives. We were just talking... But both also control freaks. Right, control freaks. Right? Yep. Um, one thing that Manny and I were talking before you called in was that sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do something. But in politics, there's this pressure to just do something. But when you're talking about a, a complicated system like a market economy, you know, things will happen and, and they'll be self-correcting. What do you say to that? Yes. Well, Coolidge had a famous line. He said, if rocks come down the road, nine out of ten of them won't hit you, but we'll go off to the side. You know, <laughs> you see them coming down at you. I call him the great refrainer. That's right. what we call him at the Coolidge Foundation. Um, and as chair, I make all um, our employees study these Coolidge quotes, and they, they read them back to me, and then sometimes they teach me some new ones. Because they're so wonderful. Coolidge was a president who understood doing less is more. So how did you get attracted uh, to him? How did you get hooked up with the foundation uh, and all that? Well, the true truth, the yep. true, true truth. Let's see. Um, I wrote a book about the 30s called Forgotten Men, yep. and I realized that the government broke America. Right. But what is the America they broke, and whose America was that? So I went to Coolidge. Right. So I wrote the prequel after I wrote the book. So we, here we have Coolidge. Uh, he he was all that was good about America and broken by government intervention in the 30s. But there's another reason. Um, I worked for the editor of the Wall Street Journal, whose name was Robert Leroy Bartley. Yep, from and Iowa Bob State Bartley, University, right? He he, he went. Yeah, I Iowa he went State. to the University of Iowa, but he lived in Ames, where okay, Iowa State. Okay, all right. But now oh, you have to correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, no, I, lo- no, no. I love you showing him up. Good, <laughs> he's smarty uh, and pants. Then, um, and he got a graduate degree or studied statistics in Wisconsin. Okay. So anyway, Bob, the editor of the Wall Street Journal, the man who made the editorial page what it became, yep. was not a big talker. And as a boss... Um, that's interesting, and it wasn't particularly satisfying to his employees because he never told you how great you were, believe me. Uh. He, he didn't comment much at all, and he was kind of evasive, but I could see that um, he was enormously efficient through his delegation and right. enormously bold when he wanted to get something done. He once told us it took 75 editorials to get a law. Wow. wow. For example, what what is being an editorialist for? Showing how intelligent you are and what a big vocabulary you have what, and what little minutiae you can recall, or is it for getting a law? The answer is, if you're a real editorialist, it's for getting a law, a better law than the law right. that's on the books, for getting a law, law repealed. That was Bob. Th- thank you for making me feel better. Very um, agricultural in his silence. You know, he was from Iowa, mm-hmm. and uh, farmers tend to be quiet. Um, and he had that farmer demeanor, even though he wasn't actually personally a farmer. And when I met Calvin Coolidge, I said, this Calvin Coolidge is the pre-incarnation of Bob Bartley. So you, are you, no, you didn't meet Calvin Coolidge, did you? Ah. No, I mean figuratively. Oh, you mean the, when, I when you read about him. It, 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 yeah, that was a it, terrible joke. Same okay. quiet type. Well, if I can, if, since you brought Only it up. Only Ed could have met Calvin Coolidge. See, if you, if you, since you have brought it up, um, I... Uh, at the end of last year, I ended my subscription to the Wall Street Journal after 30 years of daily reading. So do you have any comments to make on this, the direction that both the news section and the editorial page have 
have taken in the last few years? Oh, I can't do that. I, I wouldn't do that. No, no, I think the paper's a fine paper, and I'm the head of a foundation now. I'm not a journalistic oh, commentator. Right, right, I know. So well, you, won't go, you won't go there. You won't go there. All right, sorry. I won't but... go there, and I, 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 I won't go there, either yeah. to disagree or agree. All right, well, that's good. You're, you'll be safe with that. So uh, what, what was the interaction between Hoover and Coolidge? Did they, I mean, Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce... He was nominated. For example, did Coolidge support or even oppose the nomination of Hoover as his successor? Two different types. Hoover, opinionated, control freak with lots of credentials in the business world and in the rescue world. Coolidge, technocrat, mostly a politician, didn't get along. Clearly, Hoover drove Coolidge crazy because Hoover is someone who ran around authority, Mm -hmm. you know, he, they said he was Secretary of Commerce and, and uh, Deputy Secretary to every other department. Right, right, right. He had opinions everywhere, and because he was a wonder boy, right. uh, he was supposed to be able to give those opinions. Naturally, that bugged Coolidge, who said, seek the midnight oil, not the limelight. Mm-hmm. You know, work hard for recognition rather than just market yourself. And he, he felt Hoover fit into the marketing category, called him Wonder Boy, but he did none of this in public. Okay. Now, that, would public, explain the, that would explain the visionary uh, public works project in the Hoover Dam, right? Well, Hoover Dam was at least constitutional. You have to give it that. It's a compact among the states, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, but, uh, but, but Coolidge, um, Coolidge, what Hoover did constitutionally, FDR did less constitutionally, right, right. if you well, want to say it that way. But, but Hoover, Coolidge said and at another point, I go up or down with my party. He understood the importance of party discipline. Right. He knew there had to be a successor of him. Uh, he himself had chosen not to run in 28. The fact that he didn't personally adore the successor, well, that's his problem. You don't always get to pick your successor. It's one of the great trage- tragedies of leadership, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get to pick your successor just because you're successful. The board picks your successful successor, or the people picks your successor. Um, so there he was, stuck with Hoover, shut up. He was a little grumpy about it, uh, and he gave speeches for Hoover, not too many, but he did, including one just before his death in '32. So Hoover. Um, ran and Coolidge uh, believed he ought to back him because they were both Republicans. Right. Very, yeah, very big sense of service. I, I read here that uh, Coolidge had an opportunity to uh, use federal resources to dam the Tennessee River to generate energy. So he had a chance to start the TVA, which of course uh, Roosevelt later made a big deal of. What, what do you, what do you think of that? Well, what did Coolidge think of it? He, he vetoed a few projects in that direction okay and uh he didn't like it they kind of thought a pri- the private sector should buy up that area that was the 20s view and and uh you know when coolidge died in january 33 he died on the day there was a big amount announcement about the coming progressive tennessee valley authority i don't know if it had that name yet but it was right. clear that roosevelt wanted that it was sort of like uh, today, he died on the day the stimulus became law, oh, right? Boy, right? Something that was completely anathema to him. And I always wondered if when he saw that headline, Coolidge, in the morning in early January about the coming big 
damn system in the south that just put him over the edge and he had his was, heart attack. Was he? Was he? Well, he had a heart attack, so he was in declining health uh, during the he, last. Uh, well, it's hard to say. I, I say heart attack. It could have been a stroke. Same for Harding. Okay. But the we don't have. You know, they didn't have angiograms like we have or reports. You know, we don't really know well, quite I... why he died. But Coolidge, Coolidge had trouble breathing. We know that. Mm. He had bad lungs from a young man. Okay. But I, I, I don't think he quit the White House um, over his health, if anyone asks. Okay. People say that over it or over depression. He had lost his son while president, but I think he was tougher than that. He was more Lincoln-like. He quit the White House because he thought America should change president from time to time. Well, I take issue with that. So, you know, you got a good one took until 1980 to get another good one so you gotta hang on to good people yeah but but what fdr did staying around four turns was disastrous well once he ran for the third term that was really un-american and anti uh the tradition set by george washington so and he already i mean the people already had spoken even before he was his first term when he lost as a vice presidential candidate who was that fdr he lost as a vice president. No, no, he he wasn't the vice president. Yeah, he lost, he? he lost an election uh, as vice president of... For John Davis? It's before my time. Someone correct me or someone at least tell me, but, uh, you know, FDR is one of those people, you know, that uh, um, I, if it wasn't for the fact there was no television, you yep. know, yeah, he well, probably would have never been elected. L- let me go back to the... I'm a Chicago boy also, so let me ask you about... Uh, Milton Friedman called the Great Depression, or at least the 1929 crash, the Great Contraction, because he felt that the Federal Reserve had uh, squeezed the money supply. Uh, what was what was Coolidge's view on this? Did he? I mean, he appointed a lot of the people who were in the Federal Reserve when this happened. Maybe he was influenced by Mellon, but what was what was Coolidge's contribution to that Great Contraction? Well, he appointed Mellon, and Mellon put the interest rates too, let's see, too low to help Europe. Okay. Right? And then too high, maybe. I mean, these rates are rates, when it was too low, it's higher than our interest rates are today. Right. So what do we have, right? Yep, too so low. you have to add, take this all with a grain of salt. Um, but Milton is correct that there was a monetary contraction, and it was terrible, and monetary policy was wrong. And those who argue that credit was too tight, which is another way of saying the same thing, mm-hmm. are correct. And those who argue that there were international factors, absolutely there were. But I, I don't get too twisted up about the first year of the Great Depression. Why? Because the rest of the Depression, you can't lay it off on monetary right um there were monetary moments the fed contract you know there was a fight between the fed um and the treasury henry morgenthau at treasury um but generally labor price mattered a lot and uncertainty generated by government mattered a lot so you want to um you want to study those things and not write it all off to monetary. When Milton Friedman was alive, he and I discussed this, and um, he even Milton doesn't think the whole thing was caused by monetary. The Great Contraction book title, I'm remembering now, so I hope a listener yep. will correct me if I'm wrong, 
But I believe the subtitle of the Great Contraction is 1929 to 1933. Correct. It's not 1929 to 1940. Correct, correct. So Milton and Anna Schwartz and the others were emphasizing this very tough period. Right. You know, um, and if Chairman Bernanke or anyone else today is taking um, the the is citing Milton when they ease incredibly. You yeah. have to ask yourself, would Milton really approve of this? But um, for, conveniently, Milton has passed away, right. tragically. So there you are. I recommend a book by edited by James Ledbetter called The Great Depression, A Diary, which gives the story of the Great Depression from the point of view of a businessman. Right. And basically what the businessman says, well, I'm paraphrasing here, but I haven't written it well, but we kind of like to rehire or the big companies would like to rehire, but the labor price has to be so high thanks to the new Wagner Act. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, really the full income tax. To rehire. Well, it, somebody said that the Great Depression was okay if you had a job. <laughs> right. Well, this this is a great line, too, and I've I've written about this as well, but the labor market was expensive and therefore... Right. Couldn't afford. Uh, uh, rehiring was sticky. Right. That is, people didn't feel like rehiring because all of a sudden a lot of laws said they would have to pay more than they might have in money. And if you're into monetary, you you want to factor in that deflation made wages that you owed as an employer even more expensive right. than you thought. Yep, it's right. Kind of pricing labor. You, high oh, I only am it. paying him a dollar an hour, but that dollar is really a dollar twenty. Right. <laughs> And then now, you, also, old yeah, so so, and I I can't afford an old dollar twenty. I agreed to a dollar, but it turns out that it's a dollar twenty in terms of what else I have to buy and sell. And so the wages were even higher than people thought mm-hmm. because of deflation at certain points. So now, the, no. the 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 unions got even a better deal for workers than they thought. Well, for those course, who were still employed. For those who were still employed. It was all right if you had a job, nice work, if you can get it. You remember all these right, phrases right. from that period. Now, also, wasn't Calvin Coolidge a little bit too fond of the uh, Industrial Revolution's infancy? And that might have provoked his increase in tariffs on foreign goods, and the foreign goods end up increasing the tariffs the on in- our goods. Infant industries argument, maybe. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about the. I never heard him make the infant industries argument, but he was definitely the way. Why did Coolidge think the way he did? So there are strikes in Lowell or labor trouble in Lowell and Lawrence, Mass, where he's from, right, Massachusetts. Yep. The beginnings of the labor movement. You know, the employers say come to the office and say. Um, if we could pay these people more, there wouldn't be strikes in our state. Why can't we do that? Why don't you support tariffs so nobody competes with us, so we can pay these workers more mm. so they don't strike, so we don't have revolution mm. in Massachusetts? And Coolidge, as a practical matter, said, that's that's a lesser evil. I think that's okay. I'm going to go along with that. And uh, his friend Dwight Morrow was... Mm. more sophisticated in some ways. He'd been to Versailles to work on the treaty and he mm-hmm. worked at, you know, important he, banks. He, he screwed that um, up. His friend wrote him and said, Coolidge, you should study free trade and be for free trade. And Coolidge wrote right back and said, well, that sounds nice in theory, but in practice I've found that sometimes protection helps us keep the peace in our town. 
in our state. Oh, well. Again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have that right in front of me. But you, that is, it's the practical politician who's trying to enable local industry to pay more. He's going to support tariffs. By the way, he's wrong. But but we uh, have the luxury of saying that because we're not running, um, you know, rebellious states, no. upheaval, periods of upheaval. All right. So let, let me ask you about one of the worst uh, offenses of the New Deal following up on Coolidge. And this is something that I did my B.A. paper uh, in American history on in, at the University of Chicago, and that was the National Recovery Administration from 33 to 35. How did that get into uh, people's minds that the way to to uh, re- have the economy recover was to put a, make a cartel for every industry. Did that... Well, That's wonderful that you wrote that paper, and now I'm going to go look up that paper. Oh, it's I don't know if it's still around. Topic. It was an undergraduate yeah. uh, BA paper, so... <laughs> oh, who's the teacher? That's the question. Barry Carl, K-A-R-L. I'm going to go look. Okay. The... the um, Okay, it was one of those things like the stimulus package. It didn't totally make sense. It just reflected a lot of political impulses. Okay. We're going to have a National Recovery Administration to get growth back, and it's going to manage business, and we're going to have committees, kind of like in Italy, which was fascist, and the committees are going to be led by big companies, and the big companies are going to be fair. (laughs) Ha ha. So the in 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 the case I wrote about, which is still controversial, uh, Schecter Poultry, right. the poultry yep. industry, um, the big companies, well, the the supermarkets were there, and they wanted to drive the little companies out of business. So of course they wrote rules that were too expensive for the little companies in the poultry industry and retail or wholesale. Um, so it was massively unfair, and the reason we picked companies to write the codes of industry is that sounded like self-government, which made all this palatable. But of course, the political impulse came from the progressive government, and it was it was hypocritical on its own terms, because we ended up helping big business, not small business. And if you study the New Deal, there are some points when the, 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 the New Deal of Roosevelt is anti-big business, there's sort of anti-trust yep. period, right. and then there's any small business when fa- fascism was in fashion. And it's awfully confusing and certainly disruptive to businesses big and small. Uh, and, you know, I want to mention that this is still controversial. Last year or the year before, a professor at Harvard I didn't know about, a law professor named Mark Tushnet, wrote whole papers about sh- sector poultry and how oh, I and okay, Justice good. Gorsuch and other people got this wrong. And it's interesting that it's the, the NRA is still a topic, isn't it? National recovery. Oh, it's terrible. Well, actually, the the lockdowns achieved what the NRA was trying to do: put small businesses out of business. Yes, I see. I see a, a connection, and yep. it's been a long time, except when outside of war, the government has had that much say about the economy. Yep, and uh, it, you're right. It does have a, an Italian. Uh, background in 1922 or 24, Italy passed the law of corporations, and really it tried to uh, organize every industry into a cartel, with, you know, control obviously by big bigger companies. Places like Mexico are very much organized. They don't always work that way because it's a very lawless place. But if you look at other, I've done uh, business in Mexico, and their laws are designed so that you almost every industry is supposed to be a chamber of commerce and then a labor. Uh, sector and they're you know it's like the John Kenneth Galbraith dream of big business, big labor, big government. 
and it doesn't right. work. Well, you always imagine that table where right. three important guys are sitting, right. you know, sort of like a 1930s or 1920s Weimar Republic. Yes. The Weimar Republic cartoon. Yep. You know, the plutocrat, the labor guy, all a very cynical cartoon. And who's not there? There's always a forgotten man who's not there. The you? guy who's paying and the I've, bill. I've written about that. Yeah, the guy who's paying the bill for all this. And I think in many respects, right now we're in a similar situation. I well, mean, yeah, government will never take a risk because they have no risk. Their right. money comes free. So, But it's also it's a bunch of interest groups, right? Yeah. And, and I, I wrote a lot about Germany, post-war Germany. And in post-war Germany, it was definitely the... Chamber of Commerce, right. the membership in which was often mandatory. By right, them. right. And then the right? labor it's unions were... Tax. Um, and then the labor unions, right. the companies, the government, all at a nice table. But the economy isn't there. And there was a, a poetic writer in the 30s not like named Ray Moley, M-O-L-E-Y, mm-hmm. who commented on, on this and said, you know, to the people at that table, everybody else was kind of ephemeral. It was just one interest group next to another. That was the whole reality of the United States. The labor people, the government, the business leaders, you know. Yep. Um, and that was uh, uh, very un-American. Right. No, I agree. And yeah, it, yeah. Individualism is no, out the window. Yeah. No, and, and entrepreneurship, you know, the, the fact that you have to join a chamber of commerce to have a business, I mean, that's not a good thing. Well, well you, that, you know, yeah. may, you, may, you think about the COVID situation. And a lot of people are getting vaccines, but wait, um, there's this group and that group, yep. and I know in Florida it's it's been easier than elsewhere. But, you know, if you work for the city in New York and you work with children more than five hours a day, you get a vaccine today. And if you live in a certain zip code, well, that zip code had more COVID and it's poor. Well, let's advance you and you get a COVID vaccine no. today. Other people are scheduled in May or April. What's that? And yeah. how can the government even begin to know who really deserves a vaccination? And why should and, they, and why should they? And because... why should they be in charge of it? So it's it's yeah. very much a forgotten man situation. If you're wondering, if you're irritated at COVID vaccination distribution and the way it's politicized, that's a forgotten man story for you. Par well, my wife and I lived in Houston for a few years. We were very um, Texan, and we still listen to local radio. And this morning, I heard that a woman had gone down to uh, Energy Field and the big vaccination place, and they asked her her ethnicity. And she was kind of surprised. So what does that have to do with it? Yeah, what does that have to do with it? But apparently the the local government and the county government in Houston are are trying to steer it to minorities because they said the minorities were hurt uh, worse, and I'm not sure that's true. Uh, you know what? My personal experience, I was in the hospital in the first uh, three weeks of COVID. We're minorities, by the way. Yeah, we're minorities. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, anytime I'm accused of being a racist, I say, hey, I'm a brown. You know, it's kind of right. hard to be racist brown. I mean, You're brown because you're in Key Biscayne. You're all tan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I did notice that when I was in uh, I was in two bouts, I suffered strokes. So mm-hmm. I was in a private hospital where I couldn't see a COVID patient for the, for the life of me. They, make, they made sure that I didn't see anything like that. Even though I well, went, you, didn't, you didn't have Killer Cuomo as your governor no. uh, sending. But when I went to the government and... hospital because it was the third stroke, then the ambulance forced me into the stri- into the stroke unit at the government hospital, uh, Miami Jackson, uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital. I really could see the minorities really hit by COVID. Yeah, uh, everyone was brown and black, brown and black, brown and mm-hmm. black, and they all had their tubes in between their mouths, 
and the you respirators. Could, yeah, yeah, and you can tell they were they, they were on their last days. Okay. Well, so that's my personal. Amity, let me as we wrap this up, we're coming to the end of our hour. But let me uh, let me ask you. You may not want to go to some of these places, but you know, uh, Calvin Coolidge is the last president who doesn't have a federally funded presidential library. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Do you know that Barack Obama doesn't have a federally funded presidential library? Because it's not a library. It doesn't have books. It's not a library. He doesn't want his records uh, in the library. It's a mausoleum. It's a Pyramid. political center. They're trying to build it in Chicago. They're trying to put it in uh, historic parkland, so there's a big fight. But you know, Obama is the first president after Coolidge to not have a federally funded presidential library because he doesn't want... The library run See where by all the, his money well, went. Well, the library run by the National uh, Administration of Archives and Records or something like that. What do you make of that? Well, I don't know about President Obama. Oh, and I'm yeah. from Hyde Park myself. Oh, my God. Oh, so it's your land that's being outside. taken over. My but wife and I went to college there. I don't there. know um, about that, but uh, Coolidge explicitly rejected government spending on ex-presidents in this autobiography. I really recommend it. If you want to have a book for your grandchildren, this book is it for your children. The Autobiography of Calvin Coolidge, new edition with notes for your kids, easy to read, and great photos. But um, cool. And so we could use your donations because currently the Coolidge Foundation is run entirely on private funds. Like Hillsdale College. We don't have a feed from the government, uh, from the Washington government, and, and, and we could use your support. You can sponsor students if you go to CoolidgeFoundation.org, and we do have a library. We have a real library, and we have a virtual library where people are typing up his letters or checking them and posting them in, in GoFundMe. So if you search Calvin Coolidge in GoFundMe, you'll see that, and every penny you give will help Coolidge become more available to little children who can learn about the president who was polite and saved money. Absolutely. And a real gentleman. So where is this located? Is this in Vermont or in Massachusetts? Well, the, the Coolidge um, Center, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Calvin Coolidge presidential site, right. where Coolidge was born in Vermont. It's very beautiful. It's near Dartmouth College or Ludlow, where the ski resort Okemo is. Oh, sure. And uh, we hope you come. We run that um, on with the state which owns most of the land. The Coolidge family owns the church, the foundation, because Coolidge believes in the separation of church and state. So the foundation is the church, but the state um, maintains the entire site beautifully, and the cemetery where Coolidge's humble grave stands is there. And then in Washington now we have Coolidge House, provided by the private sector, where we bring kids um, to teach them about Calvin Coolidge. Wow, that's so, fascinating. Now, can you, do you so have a we, website? We you need do? your support for that. Give us your website again. Yeah, website and phone number, and, and remember, it's radio, so say it twice. CoolidgeFoundation.org, and just go to GoFundMe, and you'll see our drive. We have volunteers editing Coolidge on GoFundMe for the virtual library, and you can sponsor a book or um, an effort there, uh, Coolidge Foundation. Um, I'm trying to think of a best phone number for you. I'm not going to give you a phone number. Just yeah. go to CoolidgeFoundation.org, and you'll you'll find all you need there. Or write me at aschlaes at calvin-coolidge.org, Amity Schlaes, and I will answer you. We have a wonderful well, executive director, Dean Ball. 
Well, thank you, Amity. It was so wonderful to speak with you, and hopefully we can have you back. Thank you very much. And we got to get the word thank out about you, Calvin Coolidge. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. Thank yes, you. thank you very much. You've taught us a lot. And we, my wife Likewise. and I lived in Hyde, went to ways. college in Hyde Park, so we know the South Side. Oh, my gosh. All right. Okay. Take care, everyone. That was the end of the Concrete Conservative Show with Amity Shales. Slays. Slays. And we learned a lot about Calvin Coolidge. WSQF. Blink Radio.